Um, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pray for us before we begin because I really need it. I don't know. You don't probably, but I do. I really need prayer right now. I need Jesus. So, Lord, we, we pray to you. Uh, we desire you. God, I, I'm just so... Uh, I'm so excited for what you're going to be teaching us tonight. Lord, I just pray, Christ, that you would be the center of everything tonight. Father, I, I, just, I, I pray that you would make your son the cornerstone of our understanding. So, Father, I, just, uh, I submit this sermon to you. Lord, we submit our minds to you. Show us something new. God, uh, show us something about your character. And in doing that, show us something about ourselves, Lord. And, um, we love you, and we seek to know you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, if any of you still need one, it's right there. Um, so, guys, last week, Pastor Mark took us through Philippians chapter 1. He took us through Philippians chapter 1, and he spoke of joy being, and what I really like, and what I haven't really heard before, as far as Philippians goes, he spoke as joy being this safety net. When, when, when the circumstances fail, so does the happiness. So uh, happiness, though it's not bad, is circumstantial, right? Feelings of happiness and merriment, these things are circumstantial. Uh, you are in a good relationship one day, happy, bad relationship the next, sad, right? So these, these circumstances, and they get more deep, they, they, they get harsher than that. Um, they get all the way to the point of family members dying to addiction or to just rifts in relationships. All of these things, circumstances will either bring you happiness or, or they'll make you sad. And Pastor Mark spoke of Jesus and this, this, this joy that he gives us being this safety net by which when all the circumstances may fail, when they fail, we still have this overlapping joy that sustains us. We have this joy and happiness is great while it lasts. But the fact the fact of the matter is Christianity, though it may be sold this way sometimes, is not just this series of highs without any valleys or lows, right? Christianity isn't this series of just continuing to go up and up and up, right? And just getting happier and happier and happier. In fact, for the Christian, if we are doing our jobs right, there will be extreme lows, in our lives. If we are on mission for Jesus, we will be treated like Jesus. And in, in, in that, in that lifestyle that we create, there are going to be a lot of lows. And these lows are not due to any action we have done, right? See, see, it's one thing to, you know, have this trial because you were stupid, right? But it's another thing entirely to have a trial because others around you or circumstances have just happened to you, you know? And that's why in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Paul says, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, faith is a process. It's a process. So we ought to expect things that Christ, so we ought not to expect things that Christ hasn't promised. Does that make sense? I think a lot of times in our faith, we have all these great and, and glorious things that we expect for ourselves, but Jesus never said he would give us that, 
right? He never said that. And I'll, get, I'll give you an example. Uh, for those of you that are single in here, listen, you're not entitled to a husband or wife, right? That's not something you're just entitled to. That's not something that Jesus promised you, right? That's something that may or may not come. But I know a lot of people that are really sorrowful in their singleness because they have this weird expectation that it is an entitlement as a Christian, right, to have a spouse, and, and, and so that, that's just one example that faith is, it, we ought not to expect things from Christ that he hasn't promised us. But our joy comes in the promises that he does give us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? And so tonight we're going to talk about the joy and its foundation and function, right? We learned about it being this safety net. Now we're, now we're going to build up here. We're going to build upon this idea that joy is this safety net here, and we're going to build on top of it and find the foundation and the function of joy. And so turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, any fellowship of the spirit in any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord one mind let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also the interests of others I'm just going to, I'm going to give away this entire study for you. Okay. So if any of you need to leave early, you can, right? I'm just going to give it all away for you. That Joyce foundation is a Christ centered life. Now that sounds super, maybe elementary, you know, to those experienced Christians out there, but the foundation is a Christ centered life, but the function, the function of joy is to have the same mind of Christ, okay? So, so the foundation is a Christ-centered life, and the function of joy is to have the mind of Christ, which then goes into other aspects of your life. Paul is challenging us here saying, he's saying this, if Christ is truly comforting, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort in love, if he is truly the source of love, if he is the one whom you receive every blessing from, and if he really is the root of your joy, as you as Christians claim to be, if he is the root in the center of your life, then we must act upon that by being unified. We must act upon that by being unified. Verses one through four are a foundation for the rest of the chapter. It's meant to present two questions to us. This, the first four verses here, they are meant to pose two questions to us who consider ourselves in Christ, in the body of Christ. And these two questions are, is Christ the center of who you are? Is there comfort in Christ? Is there a consolation in Christ, a comfort in love? Do you have this foundation about you? So the first question that Paul is going to pose to us is, is Christ the center of not only what you do, but your entire being? Is Christ the center? 
The second question that he'll pose is, does your life reflect that? So it's one thing to claim that your life has Christ at its cornerstone, its center. It is another thing entirely for you to show that in your life. Right, so these are the two questions that Paul poses to us, and these are the two questions that we will be studying. And so it says right here in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of Men And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a mouthful. And before I explain it, I want to explain our hearts really quick. You see, guys, as I kind of alluded to before, we we really do live in a culture of expectations. We live in a culture of entitlement. We really do. And, and our expectations differ based on what we consider our norms, right? Our expectations of what we believe life should be, what we're entitled to, it's all dependent on what we believe our norms are, what we are used to. Our past circumstances, guys, our past circumstances, the past things that we have gone through will dictate our anticipation of future circumstances, Okay, so what has happened to us in the past will then just translate into what we're expecting for the future. This is the way the human mind operates. An example of this will be if you grew up in a home where your mom and your dad, they stay together, they're still together. You grew up in a home where there's love, they weren't perfect, the marriage wasn't perfect by any means, but hey, your dad brought home the bacon, your mom made sure the home was all nice and orderly and, and, and peaceful, and your mom and dad, you could see that they loved each other, though they had their issues every once in a while, they did their best to make sure you had the best education that you possibly could, right? And you grew up in this manner, and then translate into adulthood, and you're wondering Why? your marriage is falling apart. You just can't get it because your norm is good marriage, good home, peaceful home. And so then all of a sudden, when you and your wife are having problems or you and your husband are having problems, you you can't seem to keep a job and your kids are disobeying you. You just don't understand because your expectations are, well, I thought that this is how the home operates. The opposite can be true. You grew up in a broken home. You grew up in a home that your mom and dad didn't love together, didn't love each other. They didn't stay together. They by no means raised you the way that you believe you should have been raised. You've lived your life of expecting the opposite sex to disappoint you in a relationship. 
and you fail relationship after relationship after relationship, and then all of a sudden someone awesome comes around, but you in some way, shape, or form are expecting it to fail. You have a history, let's say, you have a history uh, all, all throughout school. All throughout grade school, junior high, high school, you got straight A's, the occasional B, you get into college, you think you're going to conquer, then all of a sudden, uh, you can barely keep C's. And, And you have no idea why this is happening, because your expectation is for you to always succeed in academics. And so for some reason, this entire perspective is starting to shatter One more example that you might be able to relate to. Your parents have told you all throughout uh, your childhood how awesome you are, how pretty you are, how smart you are, how beautiful you are, how talented their little boy is, how talented their little girl is. You have just been bombarded with constant compliments and encouragement, and you expect those around you, your boss, your coworkers, you expect uh, whoever's around you, your church members, you expect them to worship at your feet as your parents did and you are devastated when you hear someone gossip about you. You're devastated when you hear something bad said about you, right? Our expectations and the way we grew up normally will dictate what we believe we should deserve in the future, whether it be good or bad. Can we all agree that this is somewhat true? Yes, Have I spoken to some of you in your situations just a little bit? Maybe a little bit, yeah. If not, hey, I'm preaching to myself. It's okay. Now, now, listen. Christ, he is God. Created all things. In fact, it says in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, listen, guys. If you haven't been listening to me yet, tune in now. Okay? Christ is the center of the entire universe. And this isn't just now. It has always been that way. It says in Colossians that all things were created through him, meaning he is the creator of the universe. But listen to this. All things were created for him. Meaning this this creation, this world, it's not for you. Isn't that weird? I have, I cannot tell you. I can't even count on, I can't even count in my head how many times I've heard Christians awe at all of creation saying, I can't believe God would make this for me. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I've been to enough Bible camps to hear that, right? Many, many times where we look at creation, we're like, man, God, thank you for this gift that you've given to me. Here, listen. Yeah, it's a gift we get to enjoy, but all things were created by Christ for Christ. 
They're his. His. All things are Christ ever since the beginning. And we talk about expectations. How we grew up with privilege, so all of a sudden we, we think that we're entitled to some sort of privilege as well. But listen to this. Christ is the center of the entire world. Created everything for him. Yet, yet he came down. And he didn't consider, as it says here, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself towards the point of the cross. So we have to think about Jesus' sacrifice. It's more than just, oh, he loves me, therefore he died for me. Of course, I'm that awesome, right? But it's, it's, it's more of a matter, think about, think about this. Christ, the creator of all, came down as a man and didn't expect anything from anyone. He didn't come and say, serve me. In fact, he came and he served towards the point of dying for us. Talk about entitlement. He's the only one that really deserves it, but didn't take it, right? This is the essence of humility. He didn't expect any kind of special treatment from us as people. You see, everything man creates, think about this. Everything we create is meant to serve who? Us. Think about it. Every, every form of technology, right? Every form of transportation, every little device you have in your home, it wasn't created for anyone but you, right? Even the stuff created for your dog is created for you, right? Your dog doesn't need that sweater, right? <laughs> It's, it's you. You think it's cute. Okay? And, and, and so think, think about this. Right? Even the things we create for animals are because we enjoy them as companions. Right? Ultimately, everything we do as man, everything we create is for us. To serve us. But God came down to us. Not so that we might serve him, but so that he might serve us. How radical is that? The fact that Christ came down and clothed himself in humility and endured the entirety of God's wrath ought to dumbfound us. He, he, we aren't entitled to his grace. We aren't entitled to anything he has given us. But all his humility, all of him and his love for us and him humbling himself, all of that, we don't deserve, but he decided to freely give us. And this is going to be, as we continue in the study, this is going to be the source of our joy. This knowledge of Christ's sacrifice, that it's more than just Jesus loves me because there's something great about me. That of course he would die for me, you know? And I, I need to get that out of my head because I think I even feel entitled to God's love sometimes. You know? I feel entitled to God loving me because he's always loved me. So I somehow think I deserve it. And don't get me wrong, he will freely give it to you whether you think you deserve it or not. But 
man, I need, I need to have this proper perspective when I look at my Lord. You see, we honor heroes that have made the ultimate sacrifice. We build memorials. We make movies. How much greater ought we just put Christ and elevate him to this place of honor, right? If, if we are to make memorials and we are to make movies and all of these things to elevate these heroes that we admire so greatly, how much more so ought we to elevate Christ in his selflessness, in his sacrifice? Is Christ and what he has done elevated in our lives because this is going to be the stream by which all of your joy flows out of. You see in, um, in Luke, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, he sent out his 72 disciples and he sent them out all throughout the city. He sent all of his disciples by two and he said, go cast out demons, go help the sick, go help people out, go preach the gospel, go send the good news. And so he sends all 72 disciples out in pairs. He sends them all out to do all of this work and they come back. And it says right here in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's saying, good job, guys. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I want you guys to listen to this next verse. I want you to read it really carefully. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I want to establish this foundation behind joy for all of you because uh, we, Pastor Mark even brought this up and this is, this is going to be the foundation of your joy. So you need to listen to this. We don't want to give you a four-step article on Facebook on how to experience joy, right? We don't want to give you this list. All right, here's four steps on how you can pursue joy with God. Here's five easy steps, six easy steps. We love the easy step methods, the how-tos on how to attain things. The Christian life isn't so simple that we've adopted this kind of thing. The 72, all of his disciples, they went out and they did all of these crazy and amazing things for God. And it says that they felt, they, they felt merriment and joy. They felt all of these great feelings and all the things they were doing for the kingdom. People were being healed. But Jesus says, Jesus says, do not rejoice in that. Now, isn't it pretty great when demons are cast out, people are healed and the gospel is proclaimed? Isn't that awesome? Yes. Nod your heads and say amen. Amen. Yeah. It's good. It is good when the gospel is preached. It's good when people are comforted. It's good when good deeds are done. But Christ says, do not rejoice in this. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So where does joy stem from? Nothing you do for God will ever Sustain your joy. I don't care how many times you volunteered in the children's ministry. 
I don't care how many toilets you've cleaned. I don't care how many people you visited in the hospital. I don't care how many years you've been volunteering and helping out in the church. I don't care about any of that. Neither Christ says you should neither. Though they are good things and amazing things for the, to build up the kingdom of God, he says don't rejoice in this. We ought to never rejoice and never find our foundation of joy upon anything we do for God or anything we say for God. Rather, we find the foundation of our joy based upon what God has done for us. You see, because if you're basing all of your joy, all of your good feelings based on all the things you do for other people, all the things that you do for Christ and the kingdom of God, if you're basing your joy on that, you are basing it on an imperfect foundation because you are at the center of it. If you, even doing things for the kingdom of God, even doing things for the church, even if you put that at the center, it will fracture because it's imperfect because you're making yourself You're making yourself the center of your joy. And so let us never, never rejoice in what we do for God, but rather rejoice in what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us because that is never, ever changing. It is always being sustained. It is always flowing in and out and through us. Christ and his works, those ought to be the center by which we find our joy. Not on how well we treat others, though we should. Not on how much we volunteer, though we should. But based on what Christ has done for us, we need to elevate the gospel, which doesn't involve anything you've done. The gospel doesn't involve you, really. The gospel has good implications for you. You get to receive the blessings from that. But as far as the overarching work of God in his salvation, you, you put zero things into that equation. You put zero things into that. And so expect, don't expect the things that you do to bear fruit for your joy and your satisfaction. We need to elevate the gospel. Are your affections towards Christ stemmed from what he has done for you? Not what you have done for him. This is, very, this is a very, very, very fine line that we, that we tend to walk on. We'll use, we'll use verses like, faith without works is dead though. True. But does it stem from the faith you have because of what Christ has done for you? Right? So nothing you do will add to your joy. It will add to your happiness. It'll add to your feeling of fulfillment in what you do and your calling. And it is good for you to pursue the things God has told you to do. But we need to understand that even in good deeds, we will not find joy. Because this entire passage, I've heard preached many times. Hey, our joy is found from forgetting ourselves and thinking more of others. Because if we're thinking less of ourselves, we'll think about more of others, so we'll forget our problems. Life's not about forgetting your problems, right? It's not about that. And so I don't want to preach to you, focus on other people, focus on other people, and in doing so, all your problems will disappear. 
and you'll be forever joyful because we know that's not true. It would be great if it were. It's not though. And you know what? I don't want my joy to be founded upon the appreciation of what other people think I did. That is a stressful life. And that's a life of always wanting more and more attention. And then that's a life of getting rejected, right? And so uh, we need to make sure because now we're going to talk about how to serve others. Because, you know, I'm going to say it again. It says in verse three of Philippians chapter two, it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. You know, the only reason, guys, and this is going to be a long-winded explanation of just this one verse, but I believe it necessary, is that the only reason I'm going to heaven, guys, is because Christ decided to wear my wickedness. Right? He decided to take my wickedness, put it on himself, and be crucified for it right? The punishment that I deserved. And in exchange for my clothes of wickedness, I get his clothes of righteousness. He, he takes off his clothes of righteousness, puts on my clothes of wickedness, and then gives me his cloak of righteousness. Is that metaphor making sense? A little bit? Yeah. All right. Tuned out. Got it. Okay. His humility, guys, his humility is what we clothe ourselves with. It's our identity. Who we are is wrapped up in Christ. Who we are is wrapped up in Christ. You don't go to heaven and make your own identity. Does that make sense? Like you don't get to take Christ's righteousness to get to heaven, but still get to define yourself. Does that make sense? You don't still get to be, I'm my own person, right? You, 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 you forfeit that because who you are was going to hell. And so you forsake who you are in exchange for who Christ is. And so when I decide my affections and my likes and my dislikes, they are all based upon Christ's righteousness, not my own feelings or desires. Now, now, as I've preached before, you are an individual and God loves you individually and he loves your personality and he wishes to use you as unique as you are. So I don't want you to feel like you have to conform to this weird image of what we think a perfect Christian is. But what I do want to just keep banging into our heads is the fact that we are in Christ's identity. He's not in ours. So it's less of, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life, and it's more, Jesus Christ accepted me into his. It's less about, I let Jesus into my heart, and it's more about, Christ is so good, he let me into his. Because if I let Christ into my life, then, oh, Christ is getting along bored with what I want to do, you know? If I'm letting to Christ's life, I get on board with what he wants to do. That's how we live, right? His humility is what we clothe ourselves with. For when we forsake our past lives of trying to gain the world, trying to impress people in order to mimic our savior, you see the part of us that wished, guys, the old part of us that wished to be known by people, 
The part of us that needed the praise of other people, the part of us that needs to be affirmed by everybody else, the part of us that needs success, the part of us that needs affection from other people, that part of you was crucified on the cross. It was crucified on the cross. I must throw aside all thoughts that elevate my name in order to make room for Christ's name to be elevated in my life. And if Christ is truly the center of my life, then, guys, and this is where we get into the application. If Christ is the center of my life, then the things that he loves and he holds dear, I also hold dear. So so if Christ is the center of my affections and my life and what I hold dear, then the things that I love are the things that Christ loves. We must understand this. We must understand this, that my glory, guys, my glory, my satisfaction, my joy is not dependent on what I do or do not do. It is dependent upon my grip on the cross and how, how I hold fast to it, how I won't let it go, how, as, it's, as Paul declares, I cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. So joy is a result of a oneness with Christ, And if I am one with Christ, I will be like Christ. And I I actually preached this to the high schoolers this last Thursday. And this is a conviction that I really have. I'm going to be transparent with you and tell you a problem that I have with my spirituality, okay? Here's an issue I have with my spirituality and my faith. Something that I continually struggle with. Something that I continually struggle with is that I really know how to serve Jesus. I know how to serve him. I know what he wants. I know ministry. I know how to do it. I understand how to serve people. I understand how to serve Jesus. And I understand how to bring people to Jesus. And I understand how to bring people into fellowship with him. I'm really good at serving Jesus. I'm not very good at acting like him. I'm good at serving him. Not good at acting like him. So I'm good at the ideal. I'm good at creating systems in which people can come to Christ, but I'm not very good at loving people in a Christ-like manner. I spend so much time wondering what I can do for Jesus that I forget how could I be like Jesus. And this is, this is something I want to give to you because it's something that I struggle with. That I know how to serve Jesus, but I don't really know how to act like him. And my joy, your joy, is dependent on how one you are with Christ. Not how one you are with other people, how one you are with Christ. You see, if I'm one with Christ, and he's the one who lives in me, then I will esteem the brothers and sisters as he does. Right? Now, it's really easy for us to say, well, do you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that, Zach, because I'm really not feeling very loved right now. And you're right. I think the leaders of this church and I think the people around me really do need to start esteeming me like Jesus esteems me. <laughs> That's not what this is about. Right. Now, it says in John chapter 13, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so am I. So for so I I am. 
If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, Jesus, guys, uh, Jesus is about to die. He's about to make the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity and all of man's sins. And they're about to have a dinner. So you think that it would be a good time to kind of elevate Jesus a little bit, give him a little pep talk rally, right? Give him a little dinner to kind of just like, all right, I'm, I'm here. Guys, can you just give me compliments really quick? Because I'm about to go die for everyone's sins. I really, I'm scared. I need to be comforted. I need to be helped. I need help. Guys, can you come around me? Can you, can you be my friends? Can you do all of this for me? me. So Jesus, he's about to die and make the ultimate sacrifice. You think he'd be entitled to a little bit of attention right now, but no, they get into the upper room. Jesus takes off his garments, put them, puts them on his lap, bends down and starts washing the disciples feet. King of the universe, creator of all things, washes these people's feet, elevates his disciples greater than himself. And he says, for I've given you an example that you also should do as I've done to you. So Jesus wasn't washing these people's feet to say, hey, I love you. Someone should wash your feet every day because you're so special. Man, I'm going to wash your feet. And then I'm going to ask everyone else to wash your feet. He didn't do that, right? He said, listen, if I, God, am washing your feet, you, man, creation, ought to wash each other's feet. A lot of people want to be helped. Not a lot of people want to help. And this is why. Because if you are one with Christ, if you are one with Christ, and you will act like him. And Christ is bringing me into this point in my faith where, where I'm, I'm increasing in oneness with him, in my own life with him, and in my quiet time with him. And he is now exposing the parts of me that I have not been surrendering him. Therefore, the people around me have been suffering. And my joy for so many years is sometimes founded upon all the things that I do all the good deeds that I do, all the good things I say, or the bad things that I don't do, right? The bad things that I abstain from, that I refuse to do. Paul says in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Do all things without complaining or disputing. You see, sometimes we're really, really happy to serve Christ if it's on our own terms. 
if it's on the, where we believe our specific calling is. We're so happy to serve Christ as long as it means everything's going to go our way in the midst of it. I, I, I want to tell you all throughout scripture, even in the book of Exodus, we see God, when you complain, it totally falls on deaf ears. You guys know that? You guys know that in the Bible, God doesn't listen to every prayer, right? That's actually like not a thing. God will sometimes be like, what are you complaining? No. Just ignores you, right? And here, listen, there's a difference between supplication and and crying out to the Lord and complaining, right? You see, crying out to the Lord, crying out to him to deliver you is imploring of his power, to work in and through you. Complaining is declaring that he hasn't been doing his job. So, so one, crying out to the Lord is humbling yourself, saying, God, only you are able to do this. The other is saying, God, you're able to do this and you're not. Chop, chop, right? And this is often how we, we sometimes mistake prayer requests for complaints, then there's a big difference. Prayer request is how can we implore the Lord to come in and intervene in our lives that are broken because of our sin? That's prayer. Complaining is saying a perfect God made a pretty imperfect world. And I believe he should do better in my life because I'm entitled to it. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless. Guys, because this is actually really convicting for me because none of this is on my notes. I'm just learning this now. Guys, complaining and disputing, it does a whole lot of harm. It will rob you of your joy and it will rob the joy of others around you because here's the thing. If your life is full of complaining and disputing, if you complain more than you implore, if you argue more than you mend, not only are you harming your relationship with the Lord, but you're also harming other people's relationship with you. No one wants to help the person that's continually complaining. No one wants to help the person that's always getting in an argument that robs them of the joy of blessing you that you may be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul has poured so much into the Philippian church. He has poured out continually to the Philippian church. He's done so much. And to pour all of these things out, to pour all of these things out, to pour all of this blessing out, all of your efforts out, only to have everyone argue and dispute and be disunified and everything. Paul is saying, can you please pursue God so that when I come to the end, my labor towards you wasn't in vain. Listen, there's been so many people that have poured into you. There's been so many people that have discipled you 
There's been people that have prayed for you. If you are a believer in here, it's because someone prayed for you. If you're a believer in here, it's probably because somebody prayed for you continually. We ought to be unified, not complaining towards God, but imploring of God so that those around us also may be fulfilled. If this life lived for Christ means anything, serve those around you. And uh, I'm going to start closing up and I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I'm going to end a little early. This is a huge conviction I have for you guys. And if you guys are going to find joy Because it's really easy to just say, hey, stop, you know, stop thinking about yourself. Start thinking of others and and your joy will be fine. Your joy will be complete. If you forget about your problems and you start thinking about other people's problems, then everything will be fixed. (laughs) Right? It's really easy to say that. But guys, if you, if you depend on those around you or your own merit to be a source of any joy, some of you guys have unhealthy attachments in here where your joy is dependent on a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some of you have unhealthy attachments as far as your joy is dependent on a spouse. Some of your guys' joy is dependent on a job and how that serves you. Your joy is dependent on a friend and how they serve you. Your joy is dependent on your family and how they serve you and how they make you feel. Your joy is dependent on a hobby that you have and how it makes you feel. We spend so much time consuming and consuming and consuming and looking for them for joy. Stop finding your joy and receiving things from things. And start finding your joy in the one who can continually and always give you more. And so joy, guys, stems from a oneness with Christ. And I'll say that over and over again, elevating the gospel in your lives. And that's why we do communion. I mean, that's, you guys, you know, I've said this before. Some of you guys have heard me say this. You know, the morning services, they do communion once a month, right? We do communion every night. It's mostly for me, actually. It's because if communion isn't up here, I may be tempted not to tell you about the cross. And so communion's here. And as we worship, I I, I cannot be tempted into thinking that my joy comes from awesome music, that my joy comes from awesome fellowship, that my joy comes from an awesome church. I cannot fool myself into thinking that I need to worship and I need to declare all of these songs because Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice for me and he has done something that I didn't deserve at all and that I get to have unity with God for all of eternity because Christ looked at me. God, the creator of the world, looked at me and said, I love you. And I was thinking about how sinful I was the other day and how prideful I was and how in my own head, I just think I'm better than everybody else or I think I, I deserve more than other people or, or sometimes I get insecure. 
about whether I'm doing my job right, about whether people like me or not. And then sometimes God just has to take my face and take my head and just snap out of it. I love you. And so let's take communion and let's see it as that moment. Snap out of it. You've been looking at all of these things to give you joy and to sustain you. You've been looking on how many likes you get on social media. Or you've been looking at a girlfriend to tell you about something that's special about you. Or a boyfriend that's something special about you. Christ died for you. The creator of the world died for you. Center yourself on that. The body was broken. God took on the image of man. And when he was beaten and when he was whipped and when he was scarred, when his beard was pulled out of his face, when thorns were put on his head, when all of the flesh on his back was disappeared and he was ugly, he looked just like my sin looks. Disgusting, ugly, unworthy of God's attention. And he took that and he became that. And the blood that he poured out was not like our blood. My blood, it keeps my heart beating. Christ's blood keeps the entire universe beating. My blood sustains me and just enough power for me to do the everyday things. But Christ and who he is, his deity, his righteousness, that holds the heavens. And so when, when that blood is given to us, when he says, I'll pour out my blood so that you can be righteous that means something that's intense and so as you approach communion if you approach communion if you're not a believer in here don't do it unless you're identifying with the death of the cross of Jesus and you want to accept him but if you're a believer in here take take communion and identify with Christ's death and then worship him, identifying with his resurrection. Amen? Lord, we, we give you honor tonight. And God, I just, I'm so sick of finding joy in other things. God, I just pray that I find my joy in you tonight. And as I contemplate your sacrifice, as I contemplate your cross, and I look at it and how beautiful it is, God, that such a loving and perfect and mighty God would come down and die for me. God, may that fill me up with joy. And may I, my joy be overflowing when I contemplate the fact that you rose again so that I might have life with you. And so Lord, do a work in our hearts as we worship you and as we pursue you in musical and corporate worship. Maybe we unified in the body of Christ as we take it as communion. And they, may we be unified in the body as we worship you with song. And may our joy continually be founded in you, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.